All right, friends, let's get cozy as we dive into another juicy episode of the Untethering Shame podcast. Today, we're talking about the intersection of shame and grief, two topics that are wildly under-discussed and explored. And I'm overjoyed that I get to dive into this with our guest today, Victoria Volk. All I can say about her is, wow, she's just, if somebody had a superpower, it, it would be her. No, she can't fly or run through the walls, at least not that I know of. It's the power of actually listening when someone talks. She can truly be with you and hear you in a way that is so rare and disarming. Why is she so good at it? Because she has the skill of empathy. Empathy is something we've all been told about and know we should have, but the way we were taught is kind of off base. Empathy isn't about saying, I get it, or I understand and trying to make it relatable to you. Empathy is about saying, help me understand. I want to learn what you feel, think, and experience. And that's something that radiates from Victoria in the way that she communicates. I had the opportunity to be a guest on her podcast. And the moment that we got on, the moment we even connected today over Zoom, you can just feel it. She just wants people to be seen. And she's learned how to make space for her to be seen in the process as well. So before we dive in, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Victoria is the owner of The Unleashed Heart where her focus is on helping you see your life beyond grief and suffering. She doesn't try to stuff it down, dismiss it, or judge it. She knows how to give your grief space and then decenter it from the roots of your story with the goal of helping you move from surviving to thriving. She has credentials and trainings for days. She's an advanced certified grief recovery specialist, a self-published author, a Reiki master, a certified UMAP coach, certified biofield tuning practitioner, and end-of-life doula. She offers support to her clients in so many ways, including coaching, in-person or distance healing sessions, evidence-based grief support programming, and of course, through her podcast, which I'll be sure to put a link in the episode notes that we did together so you can check that out and be sure to stay and listen to so many other powerful stories that she's been able to tell on her podcast. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get to the good part and meet our guest. Welcome, Victoria. Oh, thank you so much. That has to be the best intro I have ever (laughs) received and heard. So thank you. I will try not to disappoint. (laughs) No, I mean, and that's one of those things where I'm still super uncomfortable when somebody gives me feedback like that, but it is something that I think we don't do. We don't do enough of, and I don't want to say whether or not we do a good job, bad job, but we could do more of it is to tell people the things that really resonate. And just the moment, you know, when I was on your podcast, I was sharing my story and parts of my story that I hadn't shared before. And you immediately just made me feel safe. Like we were the only two people talking, anyone that listened, anyone that stumbled upon the episode, it didn't matter because I wasn't doing anything but telling my truth. And that was so clear that you just wanted to give me space to do that. And so I I felt honored to be on your guest on your podcast or guesting on your podcast. And so I'm super pumped that you can bring that to the listeners here today. I am thrilled to be here with you as well. And I, I just want to share this. I there was a quote on my Bob Goff calendar, which he wrote the book, Everybody Always. And yesterday his little uh, quote was something to the effect, I'll probably botch it, but don't tell people what they want to hear, tell them who they are. Mm. 
it works every oh. time. So, yeah. So thank you for that, for sharing your reflection about how you perceive and see me, because like you said, yeah. I don't think we do that enough. Yeah. I love that. And I love that reframe just in general. So what I've been kind of doing and, and testing out is to kind of ground ourselves in the beginning of each episode to give just a one word check-in, just kind of bringing that touch point to our emotions. I'm curious for you, if you could describe how you're feeling right now, as we're getting started in one word, maybe two or three, if you want to expand the definition a bit, how would you describe how you feel right now? Oof, boy, you caught me. (laughs) (laughs) Overwhelmed, to be Mm. honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Um, My middle is getting confirmed this weekend. And in a very short time, it just, I feel like I'm in a like time warp right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like it, it just, the count, like I see the clock and it's just going round and round and round and I can't stop it. And it's going mm-hmm. on whether I like it or not, but my son is going to be graduating my firstborn mm-hmm. in like the middle of May. Mm-hmm. And there's so many happenings in between. We've got prom and it just feels like everything is just moving so fast for, for me right now. So yeah, Yeah. overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's, we know that time is obviously always moving. It's a thing that I think we work really hard to avoid, but then also kind of put pressure on ourselves for of how do we use time? But it is, it's sort of the idea of realizing that certain seasons of parenthood are going to change and certain aspects of life are changing and it's imminent. And it's not as if you didn't have all the time leading up to this, but it is sort of the short-term change and that representation of the change and the loss, even if there's gain in it. I mean, and not even if, but with the gain in it too, there's still a lot that comes up in all of it. And it is, yeah, I think that that experience of overwhelm is something that we kind of ebb and flow in. I've learned that that's not a thing that you can prevent anymore. I think as a, as a parent, as surviving in the, the world, I don't know where we're at in terms of how we're labeling the pandemic anymore, but you just kind of realize there's so many things that are just completely out of your control and time being one of them. But it's also this I guess maybe a turning and looking in the mirror of who am I, who have I been and how do I want to show up? And also a reminder that how I get to show up or who I get to be is still a finite experience. And so it's, yeah, maybe tied to that. I would say the feeling I have is, I don't think this is a feeling necessarily, but there's a complexity to it. Like I'm emotionally and mentally sort of confused fused and intertwined because there's too many, there's too many things. There's the good, the bad, the neutral, the everything. I'm, I feel like I'm pulling from one thing to another, which is, sounds like is something you can resonate with right now as well. Absolutely. And everything is connected and tied together. And it's like, you pull, start pulling one little thread and all of a sudden the whole blanket's like, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, you don't see the whole picture until it's like, oh, yeah. there we go. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I had. As soon as you said that, I'm such a visual person. I had a an image of, so my daughter's three and we just moved into our new house. We're not moved in yet where, you know, boxes are here and a bed is set up. 
And everything's just been a bit overwhelming for us in this process. And she's just excited because she can reach the counter now in the kitchen. So she's reaching up and she's exploring things, but she doesn't need her step stool because in our old kitchen, she'd have to move this thing. She'd have to lug it around. So like, this isn't worth it. This is dumb. But now she can kind of reach up. So she's exploring and she's gotten super into spaghetti noodles. Like we have pasta all the time. And she always loved like rotini and other things, but she's super into spaghetti noodles. And she reached up and she saw them on the counter, didn't realize I'd already cut the bag open, went to go pull one out because she wanted to eat it raw or like dried. And they all fell all over the floor. So as soon as you mentioned the blanket, I'm like, that's what it feels like. And then I'm sitting on the floor because I'm like, she can't help. She's just going to break them. And she wants to help but they're just getting all over the place and she's stepping on them and it hurts. And so then you're just sitting there just picking them all up and you're trying to find the leverage point of how can I get all of this picked up as quickly as possible? And you realize that's just not how it works. I have to pick up each individual noodle, got to hold it, see it, do something with it. It's such an interesting metaphor to think about our life. And I think this kind of ties us in perfectly to start our conversation on grief because that's really it's really what grief is, is this complex web that we really like to simplify. I think most, most emotions we like to simplify as to this is exactly what it is. It happens in a vacuum. Here's your six steps to move through it. And everything's going to be fine. But we know that that's not true. And grief is very much that experience of the string in the blanket, the noodles on the floor, the, the web of all sorts of emotions and actions and thoughts that are just entangled. So I'm curious, before we get into kind of the meat of the content, how did you get here? Because I'm assuming grief specialist and specializing in this work, it wasn't, you know, it's not one of the six occupations we know when we're five. We're like, I'm going to be a doctor or a firefighter or a cop or, you know, some patriarchal thing like the princess or a prince. So how'd you find yourself here? Well, and as a kid, Everything I wanted to be involved travel, <laughs> like <laughs> marine biologist, National Geographic photographer, a flight attendant, like the connections between everything I wanted to be involved travel and exploring and adventure, right? And my life is not that in terms of travel, right? But in terms of adventure, that's parenthood, that's entrepreneurship, yeah. right? <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So, but, you know, it's, I wanted to escape though, too, if I think about, if I really think about it, because I I wanted to escape my life and my childhood because it was full of grief and trauma. That's all I knew really, because I don't have a lot of memories before I was, I mean, my first, very first memory, earliest memory is my dad walking me to kindergarten when I was five, Mm -hmm. generally speaking. Most of us have our earliest memory is between the ages of three and five. That's pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my first memory. And after that, between five and seven, I don't recall a whole lot because when I was seven, then my dad was diagnosed with cancer and my grandmother was also sick at the same time. She had cancer and she <sighs> was living with us, stayed with us for a time. So there was just a lot of chaos and mm-hmm. this, you know, just, it was a health, uh, you know, medical health crisis going on in my family and being so young, 
you know, there wasn't a whole lot of explanation. There wasn't a whole lot of sit you down and talk about what's going on. There was just this assumption made that I didn't know what's going on and that's better for me. And, mm. you know, go play <laughs> type of thing, right. you know, and that continued, right. right. That continued even two years within like 16 months when I was eight, he passed away. My grandmother had passed away. Um, when, or shortly after, I think when I was about seven, she passed away the year before. Um, so that's really all I knew. And then my dad passed away and then I was molested and then I was molested again. And so all I knew was grief and trauma and chaos. And then my mom remarried and that was not a healthy marriage. And so I was, you know, there was drinking on the weekends, you know, when they were together, they drank and then fights and not mm-hmm. getting along and arguments and, you know, so it wasn't the environment. I just wanted to get away. Yeah. And so it's no surprise to me now. when I think about the occupations I was thinking about <laughs> took me elsewhere, like took me on right. a plane somewhere. Right. Like escape. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's all I wanted. That's all I could think about was. And when I graduated, I, I left. That's exactly what I did. Well, and it's interesting too, because you know, you think about kind of the slow burn of your norm and kind of now looking back on it, we can label it. Obviously, again, nobody was telling you, this is grief. This is trauma. This is what's going on. This is how your brain is reacting. People were, I think, doing what a lot of adults do to kids, which is just, oh, you don't need to worry about that or we want to protect you, but it's not protective. It's avoidant. And it's oftentimes avoidant of their own discomfort because explaining things, as I've learned with my three-year-old to a kid means you got to be willing to come back and sit in the emotion with them and talk through the emotion and say the things out loud that you're working to kind of push the beach ball down beneath the active ocean waves. And so it's a lot of kind of self-oriented, I think, protection more so than kid, but you're going through all this, but it was, it wasn't that everything felt completely, you know, wonderful and you had all your needs met, you felt secure and you wanted to be in this place. It was this kind of peeling back of more and more and more layers of you not feeling seen, not feeling secure and life just being what's next. And you're almost a hypervigilance probably in your brain of like, what's the next thing that's going to happen? And it becomes normalized. It's the normalized pain, loss, suffering, dysfunction, but your brain doesn't know any better. And you're not at that point, especially, I mean, you're thinking your earliest memories are five and I'm sure you've done some work on this too, of likely your brain is cutting out certain portions of your life growing up as well as a means of protection for either other trauma you aren't aware of, or as a result of some of those traumatic experiences that you've had and that you do recall, but your brain can't hold anything besides that within those spaces. And so you know this thing doesn't feel good. You know you want to escape it. You know you don't want to be around it. It also sounds like no real sense of security. Like I don't have... Like in the midst of everything going on with dad and with grandma, who else was in the home? Sounds like mom, because mom ended up remarrying. Were there siblings in the home? Anyone else? Yeah. Well, and my oldest, my my sister, uh, were nine years apart. So she was just leaving the house. So she was like a second mom yeah. to me. You know, I was like her shadow. And so then she left. And then my brother mm. is five years older than me. And so then he left. 
And, you know, I essentially took the role on as being my mom's therapist. Like she told me all her problems. And so there wasn't Mm -hmm. space for me to even communicate what I was feeling. So I journaled Mm -hmm. and then my mom read my journal. (laughs) So there's a lot of, it's, it's all these intangible losses too, that people don't think about the loss of safety, the loss of trust. Um, loss of, like you said, security, um, loss you know, of childhood. You didn't yeah, get to loss be a of kid. Childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And that experience is what so many of us have. Right. And so when we say in grief recovery, that adulthood is childhood reenactments, it's like absolute yeah. truth because we yeah. resort to what we know and what we were taught and what we, you know, these belief patterns that have been passed on to us and by no fault of our parents because they learn from their parents. Right. So this is for me doing this work and getting to this point, it's me helping other people break that cycle, break the cycle. Yeah. Chain breaker. Yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is there's a Thich Nhat Hanh book. I can't remember which one it is now, but he wrote all these kind of how to see, how to connect, how to love, how to fight, all these kind of short books. One of the books, and I think it was about connection. It talked about our relationship with our parents and their parents and sort of this idea of anger and pain that comes from, we expect them to do better than they are doing or did do. But realizing that that's not how sort of intergenerational marathon running goes. And so it's their, you know, great grandparents took the baton as far as they could. And then their grandparents took it and they, you know, all of us do that thing of I'm going to not do this thing my parents did, or I'm going to, I learned from this thing. And that is then them taking the baton to the next point. And then, you know, your parents taking the baton to the next point. And then our job is to take it and run the next leg. Now, we know that's problematic when there's also intergenerational patterns of abuse, neglect, addiction that are harder to break because they do just become normalized and we are sort of socialized around that. But what you're doing is basically trying to take the next generation of people and say, look, you got the baton now. Let's do a a sprint in this direction because you deserve to break this. But then also the way that will change how the next generation, whether they have kids or not, it's other people they're influencing too. You know, I think about my three-year-old can tell you that she feels shame. She'll get angry. She'll then react to that, or she'll get sad because she, this happened the other day. She hurt my mom's feelings. My mom was visiting and she was just, she's being three. She doesn't quite get it fully, you know, but she had done something that was kind of me. And I said, Oh, how do you think that makes grandma feel? And then the instant that she found out that it made grandma feel sad and she named it for her grandma. She feels sad. And then boom, the reaction came in. She started trying to kick me away because she felt bad. She felt like I, I effed up and now there's going to be rejection, but she can name it now and she can come and she can hug me. I didn't know how to do that as a kid. I, I tell her stories about my lack of ability to deal with shame. I broke remotes. I slammed doors. I, I mean, I'm 35 and still just figuring out what it means to navigate that. And I specialize in shame. So, and yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking a lot about, I mean, we'll get to this heavily, the sort of intersection point of shame and grief. But I started, I did the same thing you did, cataloging, like, oh my goodness, your list of losses is so extensive. And then I thought, wait, wait, wait. Let's walk it back because a lot of people hearing this episode 
they're never going to have had somebody explain what grief actually is or what loss actually is. Or they've been told it only relates to death. It only relates to the the grief that you feel when somebody dies. So I'm curious, how do you define grief and loss? And where did you get to the point where you had it named for you? How did you come upon that so you could start to label and make sense of your experiences? So listen very carefully. Grief is the loss of hopes, dreams, and expectations. It is anything that you wish would have been, would be, or could be different, better, or more, either with relationships or about your life. Do you hear that, everybody? Yeah, did I just I say, let's did I say, say did it I again? Say yeah. death? Did I say <laughs> anything specific? Because if we really look at that definition of what grief really is, we can come up with a whole backpack of rocks that we've been carrying our entire lives. Yeah. And what I love about what you just said, which is so key, is it's not just what's happened in the past. It's what's happening to us now. It's what will happen, what we fear will happen, what could happen in the future. And so it really is an experience that we have in our past, present, and future selves. And it's and it's the integration of all of that grief that becomes, like you said, the rocks in the backpack, because we're just, we're collecting them. And it kind of going back to even your example of some of the things you went through in life and sort of the, the normalized dysfunction and the expansion of what was acceptable and allowed because it just was what you had and how you had to function. It's that it's, well, I'm going to, I'm just picking up this little rock. It's not that big of a deal. I'll just, I'll put it in here. I'll take it out later, but you don't take it out. You just keep going. You tell yourself you're fine. It's the next rock. It's the next rock. It's the next rock. And then we get to the point where we've got boulders coming in there and we've got, you know, we've been, we've got sores on our feet and our back feels like it's breaking because we've been carrying this for so long. And like any human, we fixate on the biggest thing or the most recent thing. So then we will start to kind of get stuck in the process of well, it's just this thing. And if I can fix that or move through that, it's fine. But like you said, it is a collection of experiences, things that we, that are specific to us. Like, sure, some are bigger, but it is the life that we thought we would have, the life that we wanted to have, the life we dreamed we would have. And when things don't work out in that way, when something is different, when we, like you said, we lose the hope, we lose the dream, we lose the the expectations, the ideas, all those things are gone. And even mentioning like your daughter's three, by the time we are three, this is going to blow people's minds. By the time we are three, we've already learned 75% of how to respond to life. And by the age 15, we've learned the remaining 25%. So if you think about that incidence with your daughter where she made grandma feel bad, imagine Mm. if you didn't have that open dialogue. and And she realized, and you just said, you made grandma feel bad, but you didn't give the context. You didn't like have a conversation about it. She didn't have an opportunity to say she was sorry Mm -hmm. to, to issue an apology. Think of that just like a paper cut. Yeah. Now imagine if she continues to grow up feeling like she's, so this happens enough. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden you're bad. She starts believing she's bad. Well, I'm a Mm -hmm. bad girl. 
I just, I make people feel bad. I'm a bad girl. Mm -hmm. I am bad. What do you think that does to a child's self-esteem? Right. And, and right there, you just labeled the experience of shame, the belief that you are broken and problematic. And so then it's the, and I think that is the piece too. those paper cuts. I love that example. So I was, I was teaching a training on grief for therapists and social workers. And one, I was so shocked by the number of people that came in with master's degrees in mental health that still were like, I, I didn't realize that grief was anything more than death, you know, or this, what does this mean? Or how does shame fit in? Why do we need to talk about forgiveness? Isn't forgiveness absolution? Like all these things. And I was like, oh, and not as a judgment on them, but again, as sort of a recall to the sort of cultural and collective norms that we're just not doing a great job talking about these things. And so basically what you're describing is all these little points, the empathy misses, the little, like, I am so grateful when she dropped the spaghetti on the floor. I am so grateful her reaction was because anytime she spills something, we'll say spills happen. And we talk about the difference in intention, if it's an accident versus if you walked up and you just dump stuff on the floor, like that intention is different. But I turned to my husband later and I was like, I'm so grateful that we've made a conscious decision not to make Everly feel bad for taking up space because it's inconvenient. I was not expecting to sit on the floor and pick up spaghetti after she dropped it all over the floor. That sucked. But she didn't do anything on purpose. She's not a bad person, but it is. It's that, like you said, those reactions, which are ingrained in us because we weren't given the opportunity to learn how to deal with our emotions, that we we take something. We give a paper cut to our kids, to our friends, to our partners, because we take away the opportunity for them to be humans who screw up. And sometimes they're inconvenient to be around and deserving of love. So each of those moments over time, kids are collecting those experiences. And then it's not just parents, but it's their friends. It's being told that you aren't cool because you didn't wear this shirt or you don't like this thing or you didn't get invited here. You got a B instead of an A and all those subtle pieces where you're grieving the rooting of the self, the idea that you are worthy and lovable. And that's laying the foundation for shame to come take over. Chips away and chips away and chips away. And just yesterday, I had my own example. My daughter mistakenly thought like her chain came undone her tie for her she's got her canines were impacted and she's got some dental stuff that's going Mm -hmm. on so we have to go to ortho for that and she thought it came untied so that meant a special trip 90 miles Mm -hmm. away 90 miles home half Mm -hmm. of my day like totally wiped right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that was my initial reaction was well tomorrow is shot now you know because I'm not gonna get this this and this (laughs) done Uh, but yesterday I just said, you know, but I got to spend time with you. Mm -hmm. We got to spend time together. And before I know it, she's 16, she's going to be graduating. She's going to be leaving. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's, I had to reframe that. And I made a point to say, but, but I, I got to spend time with you and thank you for sharing this day with me, you know, and what brought me to this point of having this knowledge is because I sought it out for myself. Yeah. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but it took me until I got to 40 <laughs> to mm-hmm. really find, I, I was just, you know, you have a, you have another loss that just takes you over the edge. I think we all have this point where like enough is enough. Like 
I, I hit my grief rock bottom, so to speak. Yeah. Right. You know, right. And I was just like, I'm not okay. And I'm mm-hmm. done with not being okay. I wanted mm-hmm. something that would finally, that I resonated with, that I felt like I could, that, that I felt empowered with, that I didn't feel like was going to take me five years to feel better. And I went to Google and I found <laughs> the grief recovery method and it changed my life. And my, it's, I mean, every certification that I've gotten has been after I address my grief, mm-hmm. every single one. Like, it's just, I see my own potential. I have self-confidence that I never did. Um, I'm speaking at workshops in front of women. And I could set, you know, before I'd be like, why me? Like, why not me? Yeah. I've this, my life has set me up for this. I'm not, and I'm no longer feeling like that victim of thou, this happened to me. I'm not, we get so wrapped up in the story Mm -hmm. that we don't really dive into the feelings of what we're actually feeling and what happened Mm -hmm. to us. And so logically we logically convince ourselves we're fine yeah i'm fine we say it all the time you meet someone on the street pass someone on the street hey how you doing uh-huh. fine i'm fine mm-hmm. in grief recovery we say the feel fine is feelings inside not expressed mm-hmm. but tell me how you're really feeling you yep. could get a you'll probably get a mouthful <laughs> because mm-hmm. people don't feel safe to actually say how they really feel because people don't know how to receive it. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. Why do you think that is? And it sounds like for a part of it is because they don't know how it'll be received. And they've probably tried at some point, maybe when they were younger, you know, and then they were rejected or they had an experience or they watched somebody else be rejected or have that experience. And so then it's, oh, I don't want to feel that. I can't feel that. I can't allow the possibility that I am going to be made to feel like, again, going back to that, I'm the problem. I should just be stronger. I should just be able to handle this more. But why else do you think, I mean, why culturally, I mean, some cultures in the world talk about grief a lot more, some organized religions, some other belief systems, they do more talking about it. But I think it's sort of as a blanket statement, I'm just going to be so bold as to say, I think humans in general kind of suck at talking about grief, talking about forgiveness, talking about our emotions in general, in meaningful and, and impactful ways. What else do you think gets in the way of that? We're uncomfortable with it. We don't know what yeah. to say or what to do. Yeah. Because we've all been taught these same myths of grief. Don't feel bad. Replace yep. the loss. Keep busy. Time mm-hmm. heals all wounds. Yeah. Be strong. Be strong. Yeah. You're so strong. And, and society reinforces these messages. Oh, you're so strong. Like you yeah. have any other choice. Right. Because if you lay down and just let yourself decay, then you would be criticized because you're laying down and letting yourself decay. You can, it's right. like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Grievers don't know right. what to do. And then they shut down because. They grieve alone because when they do attempt to share how they're feeling, the other person doesn't know how to receive it. They don't know what to say, Mm -hmm. or they say something hurtful or unhelpful, Mm -hmm. especially like with miscarriage, pet loss, completely minimize losses in our society. Yeah. 
Yeah. Even for I mean, a child, a child loses a dog. Hey, you know what? That's okay. Don't feel bad. We'll go to the pet store next week. We'll get a new one. We'll get a yeah. new dog. Right. Everything will be fine. Yeah. Everything will be okay. Well, and just it's, get over it. Yeah. I mean, as you're labeling all those misconceptions and like, those are the bumper stickers that every one of us was sold. The time heals all wounds one is the one that just like really grates my teeth. And it's this notion of time. Sure. But in that is the context of how are we spending our energy? How are we healing or not healing? How are we developing systems of operation within ourselves? And so time doesn't heal all wounds, but time can repress all wounds. Time can be a really good opportunity for us to do that. We just get really good at repression, not really good at healing. And so I think changing that conversation a bit becomes important. I also, I don't know if you feel like you run into this with people or if you did this yourself, but one of the things I know I struggled with a lot, having gone through a lot of early childhood trauma, having all these different experiences that I had one, again, they were so normalized for me. So I didn't, I didn't make sense of the fact that that was like not normal and okay. And that I deserved to have grief within that Two, because of being very parentified, which it sounds like you share that experience too. I just got so used to handling everybody else's stuff. So what you start to do, and what I think a lot of people do is they scale it against other people. So, well, they're going through this, this thing is harder. I, you know what, I have to be strong for so-and-so. And so you end up being the person that you're not only carrying your backpack, but you're carrying everybody else's too. And you're fucking tired, but you can't let the system down because now you don't trust anyone else is going to pick it back up because you've gone through enough to learn that people people won't be there. Again, all those norms that we develop in our shame and our pain that don't get healed. No one's going to show up for me. I can't expect this. Remember, I'm broken. I just have to keep going. So you don't release it, but you're secretly resentful of the fact that nobody's asking the question. Nobody's carrying their own damn backpack anymore or just taking yours for a second but at the end of it, you always come back to, I should be able to be okay. And it's typically that comparative suffering piece, at least for me in my experience, that I feel like really bites us in the ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I had so many thoughts as I, you know, I'm, I'm listening, I'm actively listening and I'm like, <laughs> amen, amen. <laughs> but yeah, it's so true. And I, and again, I think it comes back to like these, these patterns repeat in adulthood and we're terrified. Yeah. We're terrified of looking at the past. And I have so many people that will say to me, I don't need to go there. That's in the past. I don't need to dig mm. up that crap. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, let it repeat in your life over and over and over because you're making decisions based on the lens of what you're, what you see from what it's like, there's a reason why the windshield is huge and the rear view mirror yep. is this big, right? Because yep. so many of yeah. us are living our lives looking in that rear view. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, that was me too. I mean, it's all of us. And it's, I think it goes hand in hand again with sort of the topic of thinking about forgiveness and grief being a really necessary part of forgiveness. And the way I'll often explain grief to clients is the need to experience validation and learning to sit with and be in their emotions. And that's a, I mean, that's an overwhelming process to be able to name what you're feeling, to be able to, again, like how many of us have that question, like in the beginning of this episode, like how, what's one word to describe how you feel? And people are like, like, fine. Again, that's the default. Things are, you're not supposed to ask me that. We're supposed to just focus on the doing. And so there's this notion of 
giving people space to fear, feel their feelings fully so they can release them. Because I think that's exactly when I was learning about forgiveness after my cousin. So my cousin was killed while I was taking a course on forgiveness. And there was just such a complex feeling around kind of holding space for my family's grief, all the chaos of this murder trial, like all the intensity of these things that was happening. And I was bringing this up in the forgiveness course of like, how do you forgive someone that does something like that? How do you get to a point where you have peace with that? There is no way to make it okay. And one of the biggest things that I took from this course is that grief and forgiveness are emotion processing skills, techniques, whatever. Justice is not. And you have we keep tying those things together. And so we hold on to our anger. We hold on to our pain. There's a form of that that feels like that's righteous anger and justice, or that's protective so that I don't make those same mistakes again. I have to hold on to this to remind myself of these things or to make sure that I course correct. Or again, like you said, because we feel like if we go to it and we and we touch those spots again in our life, it's going to be too overwhelming. So we just keep moving forward. But it is now, if we think about the paper cut example, it's like getting, what is it, death by a thousand cuts or whatever. Mm -hmm. If I get a cut on my left arm and then I get a cut on my right arm, they'll both kind of heal on their own. Maybe, you know, over time, if you're picking at the scab, whatever, it's, I mean, this is a gross example, but if you're picking at the scab, like it's going to take a while, whatever. But if you're getting cut after cut after cut, they're eventually going to start overlapping. They're going to start. So it's not just, and that was a big thing I learned too, was I have to learn how to release control over the justice side of things to realize that when I'm holding on to this, the only person suffering is me. My grief process is not me saying my mom was shit because she struggled with an addiction or saying what she did was okay. The forgiveness process is not me saying that any of the things that I experienced are fine. It's saying there's an accountability piece. There's a justice component, not just the justice system, but justice even of saying, our relationship looked different. Maybe a relationship ended. Maybe there was a change in how we interact with people or the decisions that we make in our life. But when I didn't work on the forgiveness process, when I didn't work on grieving, because again, I was so good at just being fine. Well, I thought I was good at being fine. I was not able to function in any relationship healthily now. Not only was I a dick to her, but anybody else, if they didn't do those things. And it was, again, I think the justice piece the righteous anger element, the, I have to make sure that other people know that these things aren't okay, or I have to protect myself from these other things. I know I just said a lot, so I'm going to pause because my brain is clearly processing, but you tell me what's coming up for you. So much. And forgiveness is a huge (laughs) aspect of what in the work that I do, forgiveness and apologies, right? Mm, So with forgiveness, it's resent, like this anger that you hold on to, it's resentment. And yep, it's res- exactly. It's, and that's a poison that you're taking, hoping the other person dies, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're hoping the other person dies. And yet, yep. it's, so how many of these paper cuts are self-inflicted? So mm. in, in what the work that I do, it's about helping people see that you have 1%. If you even just took 1% responsibility, and that's a really hard thing for people who have been victims of sexual abuse, for example, to And that Mm -hmm. was difficult for me to work through at first too, right? Like, how do you possibly forgive an abuser in any kind of situation, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll say it's possible because Mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know. And so 
learning new tools, learning new information. This is very much a part of what I do. And so a part of that is forgiveness. And it's, it's becoming emotionally honest and complete with that person who did whatever it was to you. Because if you accept that you will never receive an apology, Mm -hmm. you can accept that you will never receive an apology. You can then work towards forgiveness. But mm-hmm. you could you keep yourself in emotional jail every single day. Yep. You sit around and wait for an apology you will never receive. Oh, I love the way you just described that emotional completeness and honesty. And I think that's that piece of, because one thing that comes up a lot in the therapy room is I'll bring up something to the effect of forgiveness or grief. And it's the idea, again, of saying that what happened is okay, or that we're we're absolving someone else of what they did. And that's not what we're talking about. Because again, that's the justice side. When somebody abuses somebody, hurts somebody, it's never okay. When my daughter is a three-year-old and a dick, that's not okay. All the way up to the spectrum of somebody abusing somebody, of murder, of all, where none of those actions are okay. But if I am holding on to those things, and I'm worse with myself, which is where I think I have to grieve the fact that I'm not a perfect human. That's been my biggest process over time. But it's realizing that all I'm doing, I think about it like the chapter book, is I'm in chapter 17 right now, but I keep making a choice to go back to chapter two and I'm stuck there. And now I'm giving all my power to either past me, who's not the same person that's sitting here now, or in the case of somebody else, to them. Because we're waiting on them. We're acting in a place of hoping that if I'm angry long enough, if I withhold my forgiveness, if I say these things, something's going to happen. But what we're doing is we're looking for somebody else to make our pain go away. And they can't. Even if they gave you that apology, even if they made the amends and it was exactly what you thought it was supposed to be, it's not going to heal the emotional pain. It's never going to do that. That is an internal process. And so it's, I think the reframing when people hear that, we're not saying you're responsible for what happened to you. That is still not okay. We're saying you have a responsibility and control and power in your life to decide now, I don't have to carry this with me anymore. I don't have to continually turn back to chapter two or write the story where chapter two is at the center of the whole experience. It's a choice. Yes. And that's where so many grievers don't feel like they have a choice. And if you leave with anything that's said today, from this episode, I hope you hear, you always have a choice because that is so disempowering to give all of that power to somebody else Mm -hmm. because nobody is going to care more about you than you. Right. And nobody's living in that pain. So they're, it's not even that they might not care. I mean, they don't, but it's also they're not inconvenienced by it. So the motivation is never going to be there anyways. You are the one that has to deal with that and has to take ownership of that. And I think I love, as we're sort of wrapping up, getting to that point of choice and really that notion of shame makes us exist in this space where we feel like the only choice is to keep performing. Because again, this belief that I am the problem, I am bad, I have to keep carrying the backpack, I have to keep doing this. And in that grief and the complexity of grief over time and the sort of unwillingness to turn and face it or the lack of skills and capacity to turn and face it, particularly when we're younger, they lead us to feel stuck 
And the reality is the only way that you are unstuck is to start talking about it, to start naming it, to start making space for it, to start putting it in some sort of space with somebody you can trust whether that's you or me, or they're talking to their doctor or their partner or their own therapist that they already have, but starting to figure out a way to put it out there and to, I think, at least uncouple yourself from the central point of it. So really just looking at this is the context of your life and your life can't be reduced to just three or four bullet points of what's happened. Let's look at all of these other things and let's feel everything about this side but let's feel everything about all these other pieces too and making a choice to expand the sort of tunnel of how you're viewing yourself beyond just what has or hasn't happened to you or what has or has not, what's the future sense, what will or will not happen to you if we think about that too. And I want people to think, cause they might be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm beyond this point, right? How do I know yeah. if, and so if, a lot, what I see can happen, especially in the case of like murder or things like yeah. that, or, you know, people start and my whole format for my podcast this year is about nonprofits featuring nonprofits and organizations mm. and foundations and things started from, you know, pain to purpose. But what happens sometimes is people can falsely get themselves to falsely believe that they're okay because they'll put all of that anger and all that energy into a project, right? So creating a nonprofit in memory of somebody or doing these cancer mm. walks or doing like, you know, we get busy doing these things to mm -hmm. avoid the really, what's mm -hmm. really, what they're really feeling. And so you have this false sense of feeling fine That's until true. you have another loss, right? That just kind of pulls you back. So if you have moments or days when you're talking about someone you've lost or you're talking even about a relationship with someone living that you think, yeah, I forgot about that. He's they're they're written. I wrote them off of my life, out of my life that that's done and done and over with. But if you start talking and talking and talking, right, you're repeating the story, you're into mm -hmm. the story and you're all of a sudden really wound up and you're pulled back in time and emotionally like pulled back to that space. You have yeah. not dealt with it, my friend, because mm. emotionally you are, there's something incomplete there. There's yeah. something there to uncover and investigate. So that's how, you know, I, I like that. And I, I think it's that piece of, I talk a lot about the notion of band-aid solutions and, you know, being in the U S and the sort of band-aid solution idea of just how do we cover up what's right in front of us and right on the surface to keep going? You know, so again, with the paper cuts, it's, well, now it's infected. It's, uh, there's something happening under the skin, but we just keep putting more band-aids on it. We're covered in band-aids, but we haven't actually done anything to clean, to debride the wounds, to do any actual meaningful healing. And so I think the other thing in that too, is sometimes there's like the, I guess the layering of grief that happens. And I experience this a lot where I'll start to think about something that I can tell I have grief or I've experienced a loss or I'm moving through some shame around maybe a moment that I felt like I lost because I wasn't the person I wanted to be and all of these things. And then what'll happen is I'll start to feel grief about my grief, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. I'll be like, well, why didn't I do something sooner? What about this? Why am I holding on to this? I should have known better. It's all of that piece too. Mm -hmm. And then we start to grieve, grieve the time that we lost because we didn't know this stuff five years ago, 10 years ago. 
And it's, I think, again, going back to how you started, so beautiful sort of tie in as we wrap up is this notion of how do you see time in a continuum where we're intentional about how we show up with the time that we have, but really release the idea that we can control time that's happened up to this point. And how do you give yourself grace and love and grieve the fact that the you that existed five years ago, 10 years ago, when you and I were little, when we were five and seven and going through some of our trauma, how do we show love and kindness to that version of ourselves and say, gosh, we did the best we could with the information we had, with the energy and skills and capacity available to us. And now I know something different and Mm -hmm. I'm going to still turn and face and give that person love, whether it's me, someone else, whatever, and then allow myself the possibility to make a decision now to write a new story from this point, rather than being pissed off that it's chapter 42 instead of chapter 21. 1000%. Love that. I feel like you gave us a couple really key nuggets that I hope people take. One, the description that grief is, again, you never even said the word death. It is this loss of hope of dreams of, I forget what the third one is. I want to say expectation, but that's, is it? Okay. So I didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And this idea of what that looks like and how it is okay to use that term. It is okay to describe grief as something that you're going through. Again, I'm grieving. I'm so excited. We bought a house. I'm grieving the fact that I don't have the protection of a landlord anymore. I'm grieving the fact that I feel like, is there different options that could have been there. Is this the right expectation that I had about buying this house versus something else? I'm grieving the loss of autonomy in a different way because you're on the hook for this kind of stuff. Like you, there's so many things and it's okay to say you're in it and it doesn't have to make sense to anybody else. It doesn't have to be anything. It is your process, your experience. It's a choice you get to make to go through this because you deserve to experience your pain and to learn that you have the capacity to move through it. And I think the last thing you said that's really key to me is the separation of the self as the problem. And so again, sort of grieving what's happened, the emotion, the relationship, the experiences, the situations, but we're not at all tying to this a value judgment of ourselves as a person or honestly of anybody else as a person. We can focus on the grief of those experiences and the situations that we are emotionally tethered to and release the rest because it just doesn't have to have a place in our story. You know how like in funerals back in the day, the women wore black and they had a veil. Like that is exactly what grief does to us. It puts a veil over our eyes. So when we look in the mirror and we have this veil, we don't see ourselves clearly and we don't see other people clearly either. And so this work that I talk about and what I do with people is lifting the veil so that you can see yourself more clearly. Well, and I think that some of it too is just this idea of how do you do it? And when you have to put the veil back down, give yourself grace and then pick it up again. And I think that is at least for you and I in the work we do from shame and grief perspective, we're not selling anybody on the quick fix. We're not selling anybody on, if you just do this in six weeks, you're going to feel fine. It's never going to happen again. No, you might have another wave of grief and you might've processed something and down the road, something might happen and it kicks up something you didn't even know you were holding on to. That's okay. You might start this process and go, I got a dip. I'm not ready to keep going. That's okay as well. The idea is just giving yourself permission to start, to be in the space, to focus on that next 1%. And I love how you bring that up with your clients too. It's just 
What is the 1% change? What is the 1% control we could take that isn't saying that we're at fault? It isn't putting the onus on us for something. It's saying I can choose to take control and power back over the things that are mine, which is who I am now and how I want to show up in the future and the way I dictate and spend my time in this process moving forward. Yeah, peeling back the onion does not feel good, but in the process, but it definitely gets you closer to your spirit and your soul and who you really are as a person. Yeah. And, and getting to that place of, there used to be a time I would talk about what happened to me and I was almost emotionally dead and detached Mm -hmm. because it was so disconnected. Now I can talk about it and actually sound somewhat the same when I talk about what's happened, but the feeling is different because I've connected my head and my heart. I've connected my head, heart, and my body and all the stuff I was holding there. And so I think that's what you're giving people space to realize is you don't have to live your life disconnected from your full self mm-hmm. and holding on to grief and trauma and pain is a surefire way to live that disconnected life. I couldn't have said it better myself. All right. So let's close the same way that we came in. What's one word to describe how you feel right now? Inspired. Mm. I feel charged. Like, yeah, that too. Yeah, like I'm ready. I'm going to call my therapist. I'm like ready to come <laughs> back in and be like, I want to revisit some of this just to see because it's also the, the revisiting where I've come and like recognizing how the work I have done too. So I'm excited about that. Celebrate so I'm those wins. Say, yes. Yes, exactly. And and not saying it's done, but saying I've I've gone up a lot of hills up to this point and mm-hmm. it is okay for me to celebrate that. I'm going to put links to our episode and to your podcast as a whole so people can check both of those out. I'm going to put links to your website, all sorts of places where people can find you and get to connect with you, especially for people that are like, gosh, I I have that same feeling. I know when Victoria's talking about this, like I that's where I am and I need to turn and face this and I want to do it with someone like you. If you could give people just the okay, great. I'm taking all this in. What do I do next? What would be your one invitation for anybody listening as a next step, as you think about grief and their process? Write down on a piece of paper at the top. What do I wish would be different, better, or more for my life? Mm. Where do I have a hope? Where do I have a loss of hopes, dreams, and expectations? Because if you can look at it, I know it's heavy. I know. I I like to go deep. So let's go deep. I want to go deep. Let's go deep. That would be my suggestion. Go deep and get curious. Just get curious about where you've been and where you are today and connect the dots. You'll connect dots for yourself. You really will. And if you can't, then I call me. I'm a connect. I'm a dot connector (laughs) for people. I love it. I love that. We didn't even get into like being a highly sensitive person and grief. I know. I know. I feel well, like well, I could do. Know, this is a whole separate conversation. We'll have to come back and do it. Because I guarantee listeners are going to be like, I need more. I need the same way I feel. I'm like, I need to hear more from Victoria. I want to bring in a case example. I want to walk through it. I want to hear the process. I want to do my own piece. So if you're all feeling the way that I do and you're just like, oh my gosh, this person draws me in and I just want to learn more and I want to be with someone again. If we go back to empathy, it's not saying she gets it. She understands it. It's that she wants to be there with me as I walk through my story. And 
that is absolutely who she is as a person. Check out her website. Please listen to the podcast. It's incredible. Her capacity to interview and to ask questions and to make space is great. So even if you're not ready to do your own work, you can do some of that indirect work and healing by listening to other people share their stories, seeing what that looks like. And I think the cultivation of hope that can come from the more stories you hear with people that are feeling that same sense of stuckness or have felt that stuckness that are able to do that one, three, 5% shift to start moving through it. So you can start to believe it's possible and that you deserve it as well. Well, Victoria, thank you so much. Again, I think we definitely are going to have to talk about and hear from the listeners. What do we want to go more into? I would love to do this with you. I'm, I'm just so grateful. So I'm big hugs over the computer to you and I can't wait to do this again. Same, same. Thank you for having me. 